Hey, in just a minute, we are going to open up God's Word and spend some time studying through the verses we just heard in the Gospel of Mark. But before we do that, I had a brief announcement I wanted to share with you, and that's that this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And so many of you over the last several years have participated in an Ash Wednesday service at SMCC. How many of you have done that? Just by a show of hands. Many of you. And we're having another service this Wednesday at 7 p.m. over at Old North and want to invite you to come out. And for those of you who are kind of new to Christianity, new to the whole idea of the church calendar, uh, Ash Wednesday is the counterpart to Easter Sunday. It begins the season of Lent on the church calendar, which leads up to Easter Sunday. And Ash Wednesday is in some ways the counterpoint to Easter Sunday. On Ash Wednesday, we remember that we are but dust before the face of God, that we are people who are bound to death On Easter Sunday, we celebrate God's great overturning and victory over death in Jesus Christ. And so Ash Wednesday is a fantastic way for us to begin uh, this important season on the church calendar, the season of Lent, which ends in Easter Sunday. So I want to invite you to come out to our Ash Wednesday service this Wednesday, 7 p.m. Old North. All right? You going to be there? All right. We'll have to have chairs for them, right, John? Yes. All right, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Mark chapter 1. <coughs> and I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, we give you thanks, we give you praise for the way in which you have already met with us in this space, in this time. And we pray that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and that you would enable us to hear and to be changed by the things that we see and hear in your word this morning. We pray, God, that even as we begin a new series studying through the values and the priorities of your son Jesus, I pray, O God, that those things which are of most importance to you would become most important to us. And that as we begin a new, series, a new season together as a church, that you would enable us to pursue that which you value the most. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so this morning we are beginning a new series in the Gospel of Mark where we're going to be looking together at the values and the priorities of Jesus. In other words, we're going to be asking the question, what is it that Jesus was about? And we're asking this question because in learning what Jesus was about, we get, a, we get better clarity on what we are to be about as a church. You see, churches can all the time get off in their priorities. It's very easy for churches to get on about things that God doesn't really care about and to have misplaced priorities. There was a story told of a preacher named Tony Campolo, who famously got up and preached this sermon where he began this way. He said, there are three things I would like to say today. The first is that last night, while you were sleeping, 30,000 kids died of starvation or disease because of malnutrition. Second, he said, most of you don't give a, and then he filled in the blank with a explicitive or expletive. There you go. Yes. A four-letter word. Third, he says, you are more upset with the fact that I said a four-letter word than that 30,000 kids died last night. 
And it's true, churches and Christians can have misplaced priorities. We can care about things, we can get on about things, we can divide over things, we can fight about things, we can be all up in arms about things as a church that God really, at the end of the day, doesn't care that much about. Things like uh, the color of the carpet, or the color of the paint, or specific church programs, or uh, the night of the week that we meet on, or the kind of donuts we serve, or the coffee we drink, or whatever at church, or whatever, we can get on about things that God doesn't care about, while all the while we're missing those things that are right at the heart of what God cares about. They're right at the heart of Jesus. But the question, of course, is what is then important to Jesus? What is God on about? And to discover what God is about in the world, we need to look at Jesus, because Jesus, of course, is the very embodiment of God among us. And so we want to spend some time, beginning this morning and over the next uh, six or seven weeks, looking together from the Gospel of Mark at the life of Jesus, seeking to discern what Jesus was about. We're going to seek to clarify his values and his priorities. And so we're going to do that by looking together at the Gospel of Mark. If you're new to Christianity, uh, the Gospel of Mark is, is one of the four biographies that were written about Jesus. Mark was a close associate of the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. This book was written somewhere in the uh, first century, around uh, 60 AD. And Mark, in a sense, channels for us the preaching and the stories that Peter himself, an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, told and shared and taught about. And so it's pretty cool opening up this book because, in a sense, we're getting a window right into an eyewitness account of what Jesus was about. And we want to begin this uh, look at what Jesus is about by looking at the very opening of the ministry of Jesus in Mark chapter 1. And so if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to begin in verse 14. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It begins by saying, now after John was put in prison. And this is a time marker. It's to tell us that the, the era of the ministry of John is now over. And now a new era of the ministry of Jesus has begun. So this is the very opening to the public ministry of Jesus. And it says that he opens up his ministry in an area of Judea called Galilee. And uh, you can look up, this is actually a picture of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, let's see, there's another picture. Isn't it a love? That's a great place to do ministry, isn't it? It's a great place to do just about anything right there. But this is where Jesus began his ministry in this lovely area called Galilee. And notice what it says. He came on the scene announcing the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe this good news. So he came announcing, putting everyone on notice, putting us all on notice, that in his own life, we are witnessing the fulfillment of the long-awaited healing, justice-bringing rule of God among broken, lost humanity. 
In Jesus Christ, God's long-awaited saving, healing, restorative rule has broken into the world. And Jesus comes saying, it is here with me. And notice the very first thing that he does. If, if you're going to prioritize after you announce that the long-awaited day has happened, what is the very first thing that Jesus does next? Look at the text. I want you to see this. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. So Jesus, when he breaks onto the scene, his very first move that he makes is he calls disciples. So if we're asking this morning, what was Jesus about? We could answer that question simply this morning by saying Jesus was about making disciples. Now, it's common when we talk about the mission of the church to talk about the mission of the church in terms of disciple making. And that's exactly proper. You know, sometimes churches, church leadership teams, church staffs, they'll go on retreats and they'll spend hours agonizing over what's the mission of the church. And they try to clarify the mission and get a creative expression of the mission. And they search and search for a mission of the church and it's not even lost. <laughs> it's right here. Jesus gives it to us. He says, look, go and make disciples. This is what the priority of the church is. It's to make disciples. And notice this was what the priority of Jesus was. Jesus, long before the church was making disciples, Jesus himself was forming a community of discipleship around himself. This is what Jesus was about. He was making disciples. And notice who he calls to himself. Uh, he, he goes to this little uh, seaside village and there are, a bunch of, there are two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John, and they're fishermen. Fishing was a huge industry around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this is a uh, little uh, artifact from around the first century. It's called the Jesus Boat. And the disciples fished in something like this. Of course, it was in a little bit better shape than that. Probably looks something more like this. And they were after a very, very highly prized fish in the Sea of Galilee. Around the Greco-Roman world, the Sea of Galilee was known for red-bellied tilapia. And so uh, these fishermen would go out and gather these fish in, and they would sell them all over kind of the, the, the Greco-Roman world there. And no doubt they would take these fish, and they'd fillet them, and they would grill them, and they would set them in a warm tortilla with a little mango <laughs> salsa couple slices of avocado and a nice crema sauce. Are you feeling me? The fish tacos. And that's what the people all over the, you know, the region were thinking. Like, we love this stuff. We love this fish. And so James and John, Peter, and uh, or Simon and Andrew, they were fishermen, probably somewhere in the middle class. It, it seems to indicate that James and John owned a boat with their father. They had hired servants. Uh, don't think of these guys as poor, impoverished people. Uh, they were making money. They were selling fish, and they were doing business, and 
right in the middle of their business, they receive a call from Jesus to come and follow me, which is a call to discipleship. This is what Jesus is about in the world. He is about making disciples. But that raises a question. What do we even mean when we talk about making? What does it mean to be and to make disciples anyway? This is an important question for the church to ask because this is one of those uh, terms that's like a junk drawer term in the church. We use it to describe all kinds of activities. Uh, We talk about little discipleship books that we fill in the blank answers. And when you go through it with somebody else, you're discipling them or We've got departments in the church called the discipleship, you know, departments. But what does Jesus mean when he talks about discipleship? And many times Christians think that a discipleship is sort of a step-up version of the entry-level point Christianity. You know, you've got kind of two levels of Christianity, and it's kind of like, you know, you've got the Marines, which if you really want to be a part of the few and the proud and the brave, you'd be a Marine. But if you're kind of soft and lazy, you go and you join the Air Force. <laughs> sorry, where's Larry James? I'm sorry. Sorry, Larry. That was, that was for you. But sometimes people think, look, if you want to be a part of the few and the proud and the brave, that's, you know, you become a disciple. You, you're, you're committed to Jesus. But listen, discipleship is not an added extra to Christianity. Discipleship is Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a disciple. Discipleship is Christianity. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to kind of dive back, dip back into this text, and I want you to see what discipleship is, according to Jesus. Secondly, the context in which it takes place. And then finally, we'll see where it begins. So let's note first what discipleship is. And the answer to that question is summed up in this one phrase in verse 17. Look what it says. Jesus said to them, follow me. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they left their notes, their nets, and then later, John and James, they leave their boats and their father, and they go and they follow Jesus. Which raises a question, doesn't it? These guys are in the middle of work, and somebody calls them to follow him, and they leave everything and go follow him. Why did they do that? What would cause a few grown men who are in the middle of work to leave everything and follow this man, Jesus? Well, one answer to that question is, well, Jesus was the most compelling, persuasive, beautiful human being to ever walk the face of the planet. And when he speaks, you listen and you go. Of course, that is an answer to the question. But historically speaking, when Jesus invited them to follow him, he was doing something that other rabbis were doing in the first century. He was inviting a school of disciples to come and to learn from him. The word disciple in the first century uh, in in the New Testament is taken from a Greek word, uh, mathetes, and that essentially means learner or apprentice. In other words, a disciple is somebody who has attached themselves to a master practitioner and is learning from them a trade, or in this case, if it's a case of a religious teacher, they're learning a body of teaching, and they're learning a way of life, and they're learning to practice the mission of that teacher. And of course, Jesus is not the only one in the first century that had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. 
These were uh, guys that gathered around John in order to learn from him his teaching and to learn from him his way of life and to share with him in his mission. Of course, even outside of Christianity, there were disciples. Socrates had disciples and Buddha had disciples. And these were guys who attached themselves to these master teachers in order to learn their teaching and their way of life and to share with them in their mission. So when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, and when he calls you and I to follow him, what is he inviting us into? Listen, he is inviting us into a relationship where we will learn his teaching, where we will imitate his way of life, and where we will share with him in the mission of bearing witness to the healing, saving reign of God in the world. Can we repeat that? When Jesus calls you and me to follow him, here's what he's calling us to do. He's inviting us to come and to learn his teaching, to immerse ourselves in his teaching, to have a conversion of our imagination through the way in which Jesus understood ultimate reality and morality and the way of life and God. He's invited us to learn his teaching and second, to imitate his way of life and thirdly, to participate with him in his mission to bear witness to the healing, saving reign of God in the world. And that's what Jesus is inviting these fishermen to do, and that's what Jesus is inviting you and me into. Now, there's two assumptions, I think, built into this call of Jesus. Number one is the assumption that most of us don't know how to live life well on our own. Now, if you've got this down, then you can kind of tune this out right now. If you've got life down, but if you're the kind of person who knows what it means to be governed by fears and anxieties and addictions and to be controlled by your anger and your greed and to kind of not have a handle on your life and, and you kind of feel like you need meaning and purpose and direction and instruction and help with your inner life, your interior life, so that you can learn how to love others well. You're kind of like, I need help on life. Discipleship is for you because Jesus invites you to come to him. So the number one assumption is, is that you need help. You know, it was Jean-Paul Sartre, the great uh, existentialist philosopher, who said, everything has been figured out except how to live. Dallas Willard, uh, who I had a course with right up at the uh, Catholic Retreat Center, right up the side of the hill, it was my first introduction, actually, ever with this church, walking down into this neighborhood from this little retreat center when I was taking a, a doctor of ministry course with Dallas Willard. But I remember he said this. He said, you know, a lot of Christians like to begin a conversation with those outside of the church like this. What would you do if you died tonight? He said, I like to ask people, well, what are you going to do if you don't die tonight? <laughs> Who's going to teach you how to live? Well, Jesus is a master teacher, a master practitioner, and he's a master practitioner at what? At life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so if you want to learn how to live you can attach yourself to Jesus, and Jesus can teach us how to live life well. He can teach us how to live the good life, how to handle our possessions and our bodies and our possessions and uh, our emotions and our anger and how to treat our neighbor and how to love God. Jesus can teach us all of this. 
Or put it like this, if you're new to Christianity, uh, you do need to know that we believe that Jesus is the unique and the only Son of God. Jesus carries the divine authority. He carries the authority of God himself. He is God among us. He is the savior of the world. He is the victor over sin and death and the powers of darkness. Jesus is all of that. But Jesus is also the smartest and wisest person that ever lived. And if you want to know how to live life well, you got to attach yourself to Jesus. And Jesus said, I came for that purpose <coughs> so that you might have life, and that you might live it more abundantly. So what is discipleship about anyway? Discipleship is about attaching yourself to Jesus, the master teacher, the one who's a master practitioner at life. It's about attaching yourself to him and learning how to learn his way of life, sharing with him in his mission, and learning his teaching, and in so doing, finding the true and the abundant life. So that's what discipleship is. That's what Jesus was inviting his disciples when he said, follow me. But notice how discipleship happens for Jesus. How is it that Jesus goes about making disciples anyway? Well, again, go back in the text. It says, follow me. And they left and they followed him. Now, where did they follow him? Class? Everywhere, right? I mean, for the next three or so years, they just walked around everywhere with Jesus, and they shared life with Jesus. But it wasn't just, you know, Peter and Jesus and Andrew and Jesus. They shared life with Jesus in community with a bunch of other knucklehead disciples. And it wasn't just life with Jesus in community, but it was life with Jesus in community on mission. Jesus was actively seeking to announce and to embody the healing, saving, restorative, justice-bringing, peaceable kingdom of God among us. And he invites his disciples alongside of him, and they're all sharing together in this work. So what was the context for discipleship to happen for Jesus and his followers? It was life in community on mission. And let's just notice where discipleship did not happen. It wasn't happening in church rooms, in church facilities. Not primarily. Yeah, they went into the synagogue. Uh, Jesus took them in the house and he taught them there. He took them on the mountain and he taught them there. But they didn't just sit and learn the teaching of Jesus. They actually were active practicing life with Jesus. Let's put it like this. Back in 1958, there was a philosopher named Michael Pagliani who coined a phrase, tacit knowledge. And he made a distinction between tacit knowledge and explicit knowledge. And for Pagliani, tacit knowledge was the kind of knowledge that you, you learned by doing. Uh, explicit knowledge was the kind of knowledge that you gained in a classroom. And so, for example, uh, for the last six years, when I was back in Albuquerque, every summer I took a group of students to a beach camp, or I went with the high school students to a beach camp, and I taught young Albuquerqueans how to surf. And here's the thing about surfing. It cannot be learned in a classroom. 
it, you can sit down with somebody, you can spend hours with them, you can draw stuff on a board, you can write notes, you can have them regurgitate back to you the lingo, you know, a set is X, a, uh, a, you know, an off the lip is this, a big whack, a floater, a, you know, surfing terminology. I can teach them that. I can talk to them about, you know, a wave is approaching, you kind of got to identify it, and then right at the right time you got to paddle in. But I can't teach them in a classroom what the right time is to start paddling into a wave. You know how you teach surfing? You have to do it. And there is no other way. And how is it that Jesus taught his disciples? It wasn't simply by taking them into classrooms and talking to them. It was by living life with them. It was by taking them to places that made them feel uncomfortable and awkward. For example, right after Jesus calls uh, these uh, fishermen to him, who were middle-class fishermen around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus then, the very next person in chapter 2, do you know who he calls, the next guy who's called? is a tax collector around the Sea of Galilee. The tax gatherer was employed by the Roman Empire basically to cheat the Jewish people out of their tax money. Do you know where the lion's share of Matthew's taxes were coming from? The fishing business. Do you think Peter, James, and John knew who Matthew was? Oh, you better believe it. Do you think, you know how, Jesus, how these guys felt? They're walking with Jesus. Jesus walks up to the guy at the tax booth and says, follow me. How did that make them feel? Awkward. And then he invites them to a dinner party with all of these riffraff and all of the other... If it wasn't that guy who was taking his money, it was everybody else who was taking their tax money from them and employed by Rome and all the riffraff and morally bankrupt people, or so they thought. And Jesus sits them around the table with his disciples and say, look, here you see we are all on the same playing field. It was in life in an uncomfortable, awkward situation, engaged with people who were outside of their boundaries, that the disciples were learning how to be followers of Jesus and how to become like their master. So Jesus took them in life into uncomfortable and awkward situations. Jesus would take them into very scary situations. For example, he says, hey, let's all hop in a boat and go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel, they hop in the boat. They start going, Jesus leads them into this crazy, the craziest storm these guys have ever been into. And how are they feeling in that moment? Terrified. <coughs> and yet it is in the midst of their fear in life, in a real situation, that Jesus begins to teach them trust. So he teaches them genuine hospitality and generosity towards outsiders by eating with outsiders. He teaches them uh, to trust God by living with them in the midst of their very fearful, scary situations. One more. Jesus leads his disciples into failure. There's that great little story a little bit later in Mark's Gospel in chapter 9. Jesus goes up on the mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John. This is the transfiguration. Meanwhile, back at the foot of the mountain, the disciples are trying to cast out a demon. And uh, they're trying and trying and trying. You can just imagine the scene, you know, uh, this father's like, please, disciples of Jesus, you know, cast this demon out of my son, you know, and they're, they're over there, you know, and I can just imagine them trying all this, that, and the other, you know, kind of trick and spell or whatever they're doing. Nothing. 
Jesus comes back down the mountain, and in the midst of their failure, Jesus teaches them, hey, this kind can't come out except for by prayer and by fasting. But do you see what's happening? I gave you three examples. We could give 300 examples because when Jesus said, follow me, he meant in all of life. All of life is the context of discipleship. But again, remember, it's not just all of life with me and Jesus. It's all of life in community with other disciples of Jesus. You follow Jesus in real life stuff, learning and practicing the Christian life. And it's following Jesus in community on mission, where we actually care about a a cause higher than ourselves. We care about justice and love and God's peaceable kingdom being made manifest in this world. And so we might ask the question for a ch- as a church, as we move forward in the next season, if the very venue, if the very context of where discipleship happens is life in community and on mission, we might ask, what would that look like for us as a church to be serious about making disciples in life, in community, and on mission? And I don't know all that that means, but I know this, that discipleship doesn't primarily happen when you gather together with other people in the room and you talk. Because far too often, we Christians, we gather together and we talk and we listen and we go out and we do nothing. And we think because we've talked and we've listened, we've actually made a change in our lives and we've embodied a different way of life in the world, and we haven't. That same friend of mine who I mentioned at the beginning of the service who we invited to church It was so interesting. It was her first, you know, maybe second time in church in her life ever. At the end of the service, she said, Josh, I really want to talk to you guys about the stuff we we, we learned this morning. And so at lunch afterwards, she's like, you know, I've got, you know, these ladies that I know that are a little bit poor, and and I want to use my business to kind of help and empower them. And you were kind of talking about this in your sermon. She's like, she's trying to wrestle life with what she needs to do differently in her life as a result of what she heard. And my wife and I were kind of laughing afterwards, like, wow, she hasn't been in church long enough. She doesn't know yet that we don't do that. (laughs) We just come and we listen and we like go home. We're like, that was really powerful and so convicting and so moving. And wow, what would that even look like if we made a difference in our life? But then we go back and we live, you know, a life of conspicuous consumerism and being utterly critical of other people and judgmental of people who are outside of us, and yeah. Discipleship to Jesus happens in life, in community, on mission. That's the context for discipleship. Finally, I want you to, I want to just end with this, and this is my shortest point of the morning, <laughs> but I want you just to see where discipleship begins. Who initiates the discipling relationship in our text? Class? Now, that was an easy one. One of these days, I'm going to ask you a question that the answer is not Jesus. The answer is always Jesus in church. It's Jesus. It's the Bible. You know, it's like that little child who was in a Sunday school class, and the teacher said, what is a furry, you know, with a bushy tail, and is a little small with beady eyes, and and the little child says, well, I know it sounds like a squirrel, but it's got to be Jesus, because this is church, you know? (laughs) What's interesting is that historically, 
When you learn about rabbis and their disciples in the first few centuries of uh, rabbinic Judaism, it was always the disciple who approached the rabbi and who requested, would you take me on? And the rabbi would sort of look at his kind of pool. He would have a pool of different, you know, potential disciples. And he'd find the ones with the, with the greatest chops, you know. And, and a lot of these kids, they had some serious chops because, you know, they would, like, growing up in synagogue, like, you'd put a lot of Bible to memory. You'd memorize huge sections of the Torah and whatnot. Right, Kara? My sister over there, she's like a Hebrew Old Testament scholar expert. But anyway. <coughs> Jesus is not asked by these disciples if they can follow him. Jesus approaches them and says, follow me. Now, why does Jesus approach these particular guys? What's fascinating to me, and this is just an aside, and it's kind of just, it's an extrapolation on something, you know, the Bible tells us about uh, Simon and Andrew, James and John. They were all from the same little village. And these villages were maybe a couple hundred people. So think about this. This is a little no-name village around a little no-name part of the Greco-Roman world. And it is in this little tiny village that Jesus gets a third of his team that's going to turn the world upside down. And sometimes, you know, you look back like on American history and you see these periods in American history where you've got like, um, you know, guys like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and George Washington and Ben Franklin, you're like, they were just these studs that at this unique time in human history, there were these like, you know, philosophical and intellectual giants who were visionary, who had all this creativity, like this pool of them all together in this room. The disciples were not that. They were uneducated fishermen from a podunk no-name village. And I think it's to say, if Jesus can step into people's lives like this, and use them and transform them and make them into a force that becomes the greatest force in human history, the force that shaped the Western world, the church, it can only be by grace, not because of human effort and desert. And discipleship always begins and it continues and it ends by the grace of Jesus who comes to us at the beginning and calls us by grace and who's coming to you this morning at some point in your journey, continuing to call you by his grace to come follow me. And it's only by grace that you're enabled to move forward and to do the call. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we thank you, we praise you for your gracious call upon our lives. We confess that way too often we have heard, we've given assent to, we've signed doctoral statements about what we believe, and yet we've actually failed to walk in the way of your son Jesus. And we confess this morning that that is not just an act of disobedience, it's an act of self-sabotage because in failing to walk in the way of your son Jesus, we're failing to avail ourselves 
of the good life, the life that ends in joy and peace, that is marked by love and forgiveness and freedom. O oh God, enable us as a people to grow as your disciples. Enable us to grow together as a community of discipleship so that we might bear faithful witness to your healing, saving rule that you have broken into the world through your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things. And all God's people said...